Hello, everyone. This is Frida Garcia, gender advisor and podcaster at the Inter-American Defense College. And you are listening to the IADC's Women, Peace and Security Program. Across the globe, heads of state and government are prioritizing the advancement of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Addressing this on our podcast are two experts, Professors Brenda Opperman and Vanessa Brown, our hosts for this new program. In this series, our hosts will unlock the power of the WPS agenda, tying episodes to its four pillars, participation, protection, prevention, and relief and recovery. They'll invite guests with whom they'll delve into matters of strategic interest through a WPS lens, highlighting trailblazers and their advancements, but also the challenges, problems, and risks they face. Alongside their guests, Brenda and Vanessa will guide us through the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies out there for WPS operationalization and institutionalization so that you, our listeners, can successfully implement WPS principles wherever you may be. Welcome to the WPS podcast from the Inter-American Defense College. I'm your co-host, Brenda Opperman. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Brown. Today, we're welcoming Anna Velasco, a feminist security researcher, consultant, and a fellow at Women in International Security, an organization better known as WISE. Anna, we're so pleased to have you here today. Thank you, Brenda. And thank you, Vanessa. This is a fantastic opportunity. I'm very happy to be here with you. Excellent. So, Anna, before we get started on your and learning more about all the work that you do in women, peace, and security, what would you like your audience to know about you? We know you have a background in journalism and gender, and you're currently in a PhD program at the University of Bremen. You have such diverse experience. So we'd like to learn a little bit more about the things you're doing and how you became involved with women, peace, and security. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I want to say I am Mexican. I'm from Mexico. I studied in Mexico and then I um, studied in Spain and in the UK where I specialized in gender and security. And that's where I learned about WPS uh, during my master's program. And well, I have been interested in security and feminism like separate uh, worlds. And that's how I understood it for most of my early years after leaving university. I was interested in security because um, as maybe our audience is familiar with, uh, in Mexico, we have a very complicated situation with the levels of violence, right? And I was a feminist already. I was very interested in, in activism, but I didn't really think of these two spheres as how are they talking to each other? For me, there were very separate realms. Obviously, now I see it uh, from time and I say, well, there was an obvious conversation to be had, but we have to build that bridge. And I think that's where um, a former professor of mine, uh, where she became my, she became my mentor, uh, she was the one that told me, well, haven't you thought of perhaps thinking and working on security from a gender perspective? And I was like, how do I do that? What does that mean? And that's where I got curious and she encouraged me to follow that path. That's how I ended up studying uh, my master's in gender violence and conflict at the University of Sussex. And that's how I got to work with WPS. And now this is my life passion. 
That's a great story. And I agree. I think a lot of people are working on one or the other and often do not see the connection, which is a very strong connection. Yes. So thank you for sharing a little bit about about your background. That's excellent. So today, of course, considering your experience, um, we're going to talk about women, peace and security in the global south, of course, specifically Latin America and the Caribbean. And it's a really big topic, but I know you can handle it. (laughs) So first of all, we'd like to ask you about the relevancy of women, peace and security in the region, right? So the women, peace and security framework is inward facing and outward facing. It encourages countries to promote gender equality and women's participation in security within their borders and among nations they either partner with or where countries conduct peacekeeping operations. So does this aspect of WPS, the inward and outward facing aspects, does it make it relevant in different ways in certain countries or in the region overall? And if so, can you give us some examples? Yep, sure. Thank you for asking that uh, right away. So WPS and Latin America have a not so long history. I mean, it's shorter, the engagement of the region with the agenda, as we call it now, um, the 10 resolutions. We we, we think it's, it's Latin America came perhaps a little bit late and we have been a little bit less engaged with the agenda in comparison to other regions in the world. And that there's there are good reasons for that. As you said, one when we speak about the outward and inward um, looking aspect of the agenda, is this is a conclusion after more than 20 years that's been implemented. But the first uh, approaches to it were very outward looking and that made it complicated for a region um, like Latin America to see the, the opportunities that it had for, for women here. Why is that so? I'm, I'm speaking here, I'm in Germany, I know, but I'm speaking from a Latin American perspective. Um, why is that? Well, first of all, because the agenda's first, so to say, realm of action uh, were peacekeeping operations. Those were the first, the, let's say, the pioneer areas where WPS was thought. And of course, uh, we have, we've only had one um, significant peacekeeping operation, which was MINUSTA in Haiti. But the rest of the region is engaged in peacekeeping operations, some countries more than others, but it's not as uh, prevalent as in other countries from the global north. So there was this question, if we have to implement it in peacekeeping operations, then maybe Latin America doesn't have a lot to say about this. But then when we start thinking of how do we make it speak to local context, then it opened another conversation. And I would say the best example for that is, of course, Colombia, which um, also they don't have a national action plan, which I think we can talk about it in a minute. Um, They have engaged with the agenda because they have seen the benefits and the the opportunities it brings to the peace talks, uh, first with the FARC and now with the ELN. So... It opened a very specific conversation. But then, of course, there's the other question. So what about the other countries that maybe don't have an open conflict right now? Is Does it work for them? And this is what um, Brazilian scholars Tamer Velo and Paula Drummond have called the local spins. 
And in this sense, uh, the African continent has also um, thought of creative ways of implementing the agenda locally. And this is what we are trying to do in Latin America, to think what makes women in Latin America safe? And this question can be asked of what makes, what, what's, what does security mean for a woman in Santiago? What does security mean for a woman in Puerto Rico? What does it mean for a woman in Ciudad Juarez? Very different things, but all of them equally, I think, important. Thank you so much for pointing out effectively the evolution of women, peace, and security, right? It's it's over 20 years old now, the agenda, and with numerous Security Council resolutions, it has absolutely evolved. And so, as you said, initially it was very outward focused on peacekeeping missions primarily, and I would say countries, right, that were experienced or we're currently experiencing what we consider kind of conventional conflict, right? Small wars, insurgencies, things of that sort. Correct. Yeah. Um, but over time, it has become much more inward facing, which I think strengthens the agenda. So in terms of Latin America, um, and you are the expert, I am not. Uh, it feels like, you know, there's not a lot of kind of... Um, conventional armed conflict happening. Instead, it's non-conventional with criminal groups, paramilitary militias, things of that sort. So can you speak a little bit about WPS in that context for those countries that are, are facing that internally? Yes, of course. Well, that's a classic debate, I would say, uh, if, I can, if I'm allowed to put it in those terms. The classic security debate in Latin America is how do we, which concepts do we apply? Which theoretical frameworks do we apply to the region? Because as you say, it's uh, arguably peaceful, but not really, because it's actually a very violent region, right? And this violence also, as being a large region, it develops and it uh, it has presence with different intensities, even within the same countries, of course. Um, so this opens a very, very interesting debate in terms of security and violences, if I can put in plural. But then there's also how, how do we translate the WPS agenda to this context? And I think it, it really, um, one must think that who is in charge of uh, security in the region is in many places just yes, the police, and that already brings an actor, important actor in the region for the WPS, but there's also obviously the militaries. And because sometimes they are deployed for security uh, operations within their same countries, right? Um, this obviously doesn't mean that Latin American uh, armed forces are only required to bring WPS when they operate internally, because sometimes they do. Uh, they, there's also an evolution, an important evolution of uh, their participation in peacekeeping operations, particularly from the South Cone countries. But there are already there are two very specific realms that opens the questions to how then we, how do we go about this, right? And I would say there now we're getting into the very specifics of WPS in the region, because until now, what we have observed is that it's being um, embraced mainly um, from the foreign ministries and, yes, the armed forces to some level. But there is still a, 
space to explore as to, for instance, local activists really embracing it and understanding it. Then again, Colombia is the exception. The civil society in Colombia has embraced WPS uh, for many years now, and they have a lot of experience with it, and they are actually quite active in monitoring and working towards the implementation. Uh, but the other countries are lagging a little bit behind. So I would say the scenario in Latin America is a bit uneven, but there's still lots of um, room for exploring opportunities, which is why I think we should uh, keep spaces like this one where we can um, develop a critical mass and educate and learn about this. Excellent. Thank you very much. And to the point that you were starting to make about basically who are the actors, who's involved, right? Again, I think a lot of people aren't aware about foreign ministries being involved, not just militaries, right? Not just traditional kind of security sector as we might imagine it, right? Civil society actors, right? Independent individuals, you know, citizens who are just interested in this issue and working towards it. So my next question, I think, is going to give you an opportunity to discuss that aspect of, um, let's call it successful uh, implementation of WPS. So Anna, you have conducted research for several reports addressing WPS in the Global South. There's the Enhancing Security Report that was published in 2020. Uh, that examined the extent to which the WPS agenda had been integrated into the security sector in 14 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and the research team used an assessment tool that I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that was developed as part of NATO's 1325 scorecard project. And um, for our audience, you know, NATO is a great leader in women, peace and security. So many of the countries follow what NATO does first. Um, you are also a researcher for the 2022 report, so just published this past year, on mapping women, peace, and security agenda in Latin America, a comparison of UN national action plans. So what we're very curious about is the findings from these reports and any others. I know the OAS recently published a report uh, about WPS. So in any case, can you help us understand which countries are doing a good job of implementing WPS and why? And then also, what are some of the major obstacles to effectively implementing this agenda based on your significant research experience in this area? Sure. So um, there is globally, so to say, the standard of to, to talk about the implementation is usually are usually the national action plans. That's our very first parameter to say how is is the country looking or thinking about WPS. So the national action plans are these public policy frameworks that are designed to well ideally designed within all these actors involved with WPS that set specific targets and um, monitoring um, mechanisms to implement the agenda within a certain period of time and ideally they allocate resources as well. Not all countries cover all of these areas but um, there are 
uh, in Latin America right now, eight countries that have engaged with this effort of having a national action plan. Chile was the first one and they already presented two iterations and we are expecting them to publish a third one. Um, Mexico and Peru were the last countries in publishing a national action plan. But what we found... Um, what we found in our in these two in these two reports, specifically in the second one that I published with a, a team of Brazilian Brazilian scholars, is that it, there is not necessarily a correspondence with between having a national action plan and actually uh, the engagement uh, of the different actors with the agenda. And I think the like there's there's this really great example of Uruguay, for instance. Because they have a lot of experience with peacekeeping operations, they are very savvy and they are leaders in WPS, but they haven't published a national action plan. So there's the example of a country that has um, successfully implemented, I think, in some areas, but not necessarily in with this instrument. Um, the Argentinian Armed Forces, for instance, also have worked truly and they have... Um, they are leaders, I would also say, um, within uh, in thinking of gender and the military, but they also have not published uh, a new version of their national action plan. So that also opens the question as to why, right? What happens there? And then there's also the example of countries that have published a national action plan, but then we don't necessarily see that much development of it. Um, and I think this responds to political conjunctures. So um, we see that we have, we observe that sometimes some national action plans have um, were published within particular context or responding to particular incentives. For instance, Mexico published its national action plan right before um, starting its bid to obtain a seat at the Security Council, which they did as a non-permanent member, and they they successfully uh, they got it this past year. So it, sometimes uh, national action plans can serve for the purpose of uh, multilateral um, diplomacy, but. The most important aspect to ask ourselves is, well, what happens next? Once they publish it, who actually um, is in charge of implementing them? And there's another actor that I also would like to highlight here, which are, that's also, uh, we also discovered this in our research, which are the Institutes for Women, or whichever office or ministry is in charge of, of gender issues within the uh, national or federal governments. In the case of Mexico, I would like to highlight the, the fantastic role of In Mujeres, that they have really taken the flag and, and they said, okay, despite the plan was initially proposed by the foreign ministry, we actually, we really care about this and, and we want to be the bridge and to work with all the actors involved. So what we see also, this is another uh, important part, is that um, the WPS agenda has, until now, uh, relied on leadership of particular um, people within the ministry sometimes. And that opens the question as to, well, what happens when the government changes or the priorities change? And that's an area of opportunity that we find that we need to have it um, to, we need WPS to get institutional traction, as I like to call it. And in this sense, I would say, 
from our first report, we noticed that some um, militaries in Latin America have already, they already have this institutional traction and they are very committed to the agenda, which allows us to think not only um, for two or three years ahead, but perhaps even more, right, 10 years ahead. And this allows us to also imagine a horizon and a future for WPS in Latin America. Right. And we often call these people who are committed or the institutions, ideally, right, not just a personality, although it can start off with one individual, right, kind of the champions. But as you note, institutionalizing the principles of women, peace and security, which are many and varied, is so critically important. And so we look at the institutionalization as a key factor in moving forward and ensuring that this is sustainable, that this is not going to be something that's that one government is promoting. And then when the next election occurs, it's kind of pushed by the wayside, which happens with other issues, too. It's not just women, peace and security. Yes, yes. So can you talk a little bit about, it feels like, you know, we sort of need a whole of society approach to this, not just a whole of government approach. And so when you speak about some of these organizations that are not governmental, that are supporters of the agenda and are working in conjunction with government institutions to give us sort of that whole of society approach, are there any examples in certain countries that have done this well, that actually do partner well with the government? And and how are they doing that? Yes, I would say the best example of non-governmental actors engaged with WPS in the region has to be Colombia. The Colombian civil society, feminist civil society in Colombia, um, they have been very active in understanding, first of all, that uh, the, the relevance of the WPS framework and very strategically using it to, uh, as a guideline to monitor the efforts of the Colombian government. As I said, Colombia hasn't published a national action plan. They are now working on it, and so we are expecting them to publish it in perhaps this year, hopefully. Uh, but the civil society even developed their own mechanism, and I can go back to that question about uh, the, the scorecard, uh, they developed their own parameters and a very specific, it was not a questionnaire, but, but very um, um, punctual guidelines as to how to evaluate the implementation of the values of WPS. You might not call them WPS, but you can still do the work without um, using necessarily the name of the agenda. And that's what the Colombians did. And the best example that's uh, normally quoted um, in this regard is, of course, the peace accord that was signed with FARC that they managed, the civil society managed to get the document to go through a gender perspective analysis. And so the whole document went through this process. And, and of course, now we are able to evaluate also uh, the results. Um, but um, and, and they have, as far as I am aware, they are working very actively with the government now in developing the national action plan. So this is a bit of an, in quoting marks, 
ideal scenario because uh, civil society is involved in the actual um, government work with the agenda. Thank you. That is, it is so interesting. And I'm familiar with what's happening in Colombia, um, but not to the extent that you just explained and the participation, because this is so, this is not easy. Exactly. To, to bring together government, yes. uh, no less the military aspect of governments with civil society, which that's another podcast yes, interview. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, so thank you very much for sharing some details about Colombia and the excellent work that so many are doing on behalf of this agenda. Yes. Um, and just a small note there. Yeah, it's not easy. I think that's important to remark. And also in Latin America, the relationship between civil society and the militaries is not easy. So this is some we, we need to think of how how to engage these two actors, which are pivotal for WPS and is sometimes complicated for them to trust each other. Absolutely. And this, I'm an American. It's not easy in the United States. Yeah. There's a lot of distrust and dislike, I would say. Yes, um, yes. open again. hostility. At yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. So, so implementing this agenda is incredibly difficult. That's all we'll say for today. I think we can agree on that, that it is yes. challenging, difficult, and frustrating at times. Um, so before we move on to our final question, topic of the day, um, I would like you to talk a little bit about... Um, the 1325 scorecard that NATO had developed and, sure. and had been modified um, for one of the projects that you were on. I think our audience, it would be beneficial for them to learn about these tools. There are things to help us implement this agenda. So please tell us a little bit about that and then how it had been modified for the projects that you worked on. Sure. Well, the thing with the WPS agenda is that although it's a legal framework, um, designed by the Security Council, because of the nature of the organism that is developing the resolutions, it doesn't necessarily give you specific um, marks or specific steps to follow on how to implement it, right? So this is where um, the first scorecard came to play and the, 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 the authors um, advise um, Chantal de Jungiudrat and Ellen Haring, they decided, well, how should we think of um, the specific parameters that militaries can use to implement WPS? And they, and of course, this happened, as you mentioned first, uh, with NATO. And I will just jump in for the audience again. WISE is Women in International Security, an excellent organization. Google it and find out about it. But anyway, so this tool is, my understanding, is sort of a means to monitor and evaluate, if I'm correct. Exactly. Yes, exactly. To give us like a specific, so to say, um, benchmark to think of WPS internally in the institution, right? And then this was in 2015. And then Southcom approached uh, WISE and said, well, how about thinking of the scorecard in our hemisphere right and so there were there has to there had to be an adaptation first to say well the 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 armed forces that were evaluated at nato are not necessarily the same they don't have the same structure that uh, armed forces in latin america have so maybe we have to adapt some of the questions and this is where i 
started and where I joined the the, the project where I, I was invited by uh, Chantal to participate in this to think of the scorecard from a Latin American perspective. And so we managed to evaluate 14 countries and we split, so to say, the evaluation within the from a macro to a micro uh, level. So we started with the political uh, support of of the agenda, thinking of the if the country had a national action plan, if it had a specific um, laws related to gender parity, and then we started to break it down to more uh, punctual day-to-day activities of women in these armed forces and the police because we also include the police which is something new that the NATO scorecard doesn't have so precisely because what I was saying before because the police is also engaged in these activities of security uh, in Latin America right so we did this big analysis and we try to locate where there's area where there are areas for improvement and now I'm very happy to share with you that we are starting to develop the second part of this project and we are looking into the remaining countries that we didn't look at in the first part and so this is a starting and we're hoping to present the results later this year so the just in case the audience is curious about this we uh, the, the first report includes Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, which is not part of Southcom, but we decided to um, include it so to have a, a regional photograph, uh, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Trinidad and Tobago, and Uruguay. So these are the countries we included, and now we're doing the rest of the region, which will be very interesting because it's mostly Caribbean countries. And there is a significant gap there in, as to WPS um, implementation. So we, I'm really excited as a researcher. I'm very excited to learn about this, uh, about the results from, from this new uh, iteration of the Enhancing Security Project. Thank you so much. And just for a point of clarification, SOUTHCOM is the short version of U.S. Southern Command, one of America's uh, combatant commands. And we really look forward to this research. I do. I can't wait. I'm so happy that SOUTHCOM is sponsoring yet another research project about this so that we have a full view of what's going on in the region, not just what people are doing. And I think this is an important point about the scorecard. Um, it's, it's important that we all do something about WPS to try to implement it, but we shouldn't confuse action with progress. And unless we can actually monitor and evaluate what's going on, we're not going to know if we're placing our resources, time, people, money in, in the right places in order to move the agenda forward. Um, so again, so I'm going to pass the baton to my co-host, Vanessa, for the final question of the day. Vanessa? Thank you so much, Anna. Uh, I think this conversation has been really fascinating, but also illuminating to the ways in which armed forces can advance women, peace, and security um, globally, but also specifically in Latin America. I wonder for you, um, 
there seems to be a disconnect sometimes within the military about how to advance the women, peace and security agenda without making the women, peace and security agenda work for the military as the priority. Um, And sometimes when we're thinking about uh, security, regional security, I think the new wave of recognizing the implementation of women, peace and security internally is another mechanism to allow the armed forces to think differently about gender equality at home. And so I'm curious as to your perspective on where we go next with women, peace and security. So Sweden has been a leader in advancing women, peace and security for a number of years. Um, Part of this has been presented through Sweden's feminist foreign policy. Canada follows suit, and you also uh, commented that Mexico instituted its own feminist foreign policy in 2020. My fear is that there's a bit of slippage in North America and a backtracking on gender equality work within the global north, with Sweden pulling back from its feminist foreign policy. So my question to you is, with Mexico implementing its feminist foreign policy, and Latin American countries experiencing this new wave in regard to how to implement women, peace, and security through an internal security lens. How do you see Latin America's role on the global stage for women, peace, and security in the future? Thank you, Vanessa, for that question. Well, yes, I would. I, I would say the backlash is also. I mean, we're starting to see signs of it also in Latin America. For instance, I mean, there's a new government now in Brazil, but Bolsonaro also did his part on trying to push it back. And from what I learned in Brazil, and particularly from my um, colleagues there, there was also a pushback against the agenda, which had already made advancements. So this is, and as I wrote it in one essay, about WPS that I wrote a couple of years ago now, three years almost. Um, It is something that we are all facing and I'm worried about it, honestly, about how long can the agenda go within, within this scenario, which then opens obviously the question of, well, but there are also interesting developments in terms of the feminist foreign policy. So Mexico, yes, um, presented or um, published publicly acknowledged or declared that we were going to work with one. And then um, the Colombian government has also sent some signals that they might present their own. And Chile has been a little bit more vocal and specific in saying, yes, we're also going with the feminist foreign policy. Um, This is, I think, a debate that is still pretty much ongoing. And I personally can say I have cautious optimism as to how far it will go. As you mentioned, Sweden um, backing off from it already opened a lot of questions on to, well, how broad was it in the first place? What opportunities did it have? But I think when I'm asked this question is that foreign policy is not necessarily a realm that gets a lot of involvement from civil society. So I think that when governments decided to embrace the feminist um, title, name, in their foreign policies, they weren't quite aware that civil society was going to say, okay, so now I get a seat on the table, right? So you put your foot on the door and then you say, 
I'm not taking it away. So I'm not just going to turn around and leave you to it. I want to have a say on this and we're going to look into what you're doing because it, that's how it works. You don't just declare that you're feminist and then you decide what feminism is. This is there's a constituency, so to say. So in my opinion, that is what we should be working on. But then I, again, cautious optimism, but we are on it. We're working and it's important that we're having these discussions. Now on WPS, I would say WPS as Mexico presented it, being part of the feminist foreign policy is the most concrete um, document, but not only the most concrete uh, policy steps, because WPS has already a history, right? It has it has instruments, it has its own mechanisms, right? So I think WPS can help us to keep the, the, the conversation open for feminist foreign policy because it's the most concrete work that we have done in this realm. So um, the steps forward, I would say we need to start thinking in terms of, um, like I said, first we need to educate more about WPS, but we also need to think of regional cooperation mechanisms. That's what I keep on insisting every time I'm, I'm invited to speak on WPS, not just as Latin America, but as we are doing today in a more hemispheric sense. Why? Because the challenges require us to work in this way, particularly the challenges that women face. And I will now go back to uh, the document that Brenda mentioned before, the new OS document on WPS, which is trying to establish some ideas as to how to move forward. And one of those is precisely what we can think in regional terms. So uh, women that are trying to get to the U.S., we need to think of this is a, a, a crisis that is crossing borders, literally. So how are we going to go about this? If we have our own plans on WPS and they are not really talking to each other. So we need to build those relationships. And I think, and I would really like to stress this, that Southcom has done a fantastic job in building these networks. But I think we have to build these networks, not only for the military, but also within scholars, um, NGOs, and um, other, all the actors involved, even journalists, I would say. So we need to think in a broader sense of if the challenges are involving different countries and different contexts, then we have to think it just as big. And I would like to see that happening. And I'm really trying to do my best <laughs> to my, my own small contribution to build those networks. Thank you so much for your contribution to the advancement of women, peace, and security, not only in your own research and your work, but also to create a, a larger community of practice across different non-governmental organizations and governmental organizations, and specifically within security organizations, um, advancing this agenda from the, the point of view of Southcom, I think is really important. Uh, and Canada has learned so much uh, from the work of Southcom and also researchers and advocates like you. Uh, and the, the best part about this podcast is that every single guest gets a genie in the bottle. So Anna, I wonder, 
what are your three wishes for women, peace, and security? Wow. <laughs> I have never asked myself that question. I have to be more optimistic, I think. Um, so my first wish would be um, that we need to have the new generation, so younger generations, um, to be excited about the WPS. Regardless of their area of work, I think because of um, WPS being more than 20 years, I think we have to present it to young young people, right? For instance, um, my students here in Germany, I try to talk to them about it, but I would like to do that with students in Latin America. So that would be my first wish. Uh, second, I would say um, we need more national action plans, but I would add that we they need to be teamwork with civil society, preferably. So there's, there's a footnote there on that wish. And my third wish would be, um, I would really like to see, as I was saying, networks on WPS, on different um, on different aspects throughout the region. I think we need to know each other, basically. Um, I was talking to my Brazilian colleagues the other day as to we it, we learned about the Peruvian app a little bit late, later than they published it. And we were like, how come we didn't know about this? How come it passed on their orator? And it's like, I think we need to talk to each other a little bit more. And so please, if there's an initiative, I think we should raise our hand and say, just really using the technological advantages that we have now, take every opportunity that we have to, to engage with each other. So yeah, those were my big wishes. I don't know, <laughs> maybe too long. They're absolutely not too long. And I think that they're all very poignant wishes. And I want to thank you uh, on behalf of our Women, Peace and Security podcast for joining us today. In a few moments, we'll also be asking you rapid fire questions uh, for part two of this series. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much. And I know Brenda will have some words of thanks for you as well, Anna. Thank you, Vanessa. Yes, Anna. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. You have such a busy schedule and it has been invaluable. All I have to say is I'm much smarter about Latin America and what's going on with women, peace and security. Uh, I loved your three wishes. I wish them as well. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. Now that we have met you and gotten to know you, uh, this is maybe the start of us having more frequent conversations, I would say, so that we actually know how to work together effectively. Exactly. Yes. So once again, thank you for your time. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, everyone and your audience for being here today and for the invitation to the Inter-American Defense College. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that you will subscribe and tune in as we share more insights and explore women, peace, and security from various theoretical and practical perspectives. This podcast is a production of the Inter-American Defense College. The hosts, guests, and IADC team receive no financial benefits for their participation. The ideas and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the participants alone and should not be taken to express the views of the institutions or governments they represent. To learn more about the IADC and our Women, Peace and Security program, please go to our show notes for links and resources. You can also visit us at iadc.edu.